One of the earliest teachings of the Roman Catholic Church during the 15th and uh, end of the 15th and into the 16th century, and is still held in some ways today, even though uh, we would, uh, there's been some slight adjustment to it, is that sinners go and confess their sin to the priest. And it is there that they can receive temporal removement of punishment. Not complete removement, but just temporal removement. This punishment could either be taken care of while, so what's, so the punishment that remains, there's a, there's only a temporary, so there's still stuff that remains. And that which remains can be taken care of either by what you do in this life or the next life to come. And that is typically described in a place called purgatory. You've, some of you have probably heard this. Pur- purgatory is the temporal holding place for all those who had remaining sin left in their lives that had not been cleansed while they were here on this earth. And they can't go into the presence of God who is pure until they themselves are pure. And so purgatory is this place where you'll be expunged of all of the remaining sin. And this could be this holding place of torment and payment for your sins could be up to thousands of years, depending upon how much remaining sin that you had. And just on the heels of this teaching that started to take place, uh, became popular in the church, there was introduced a second doctrine added to this one called indulgences or indulgence. Now, if you wanted to decrease the or possibly remove your remaining sin that you had between you and God, and you don't want to have to pay for it in purgatory, you could do so by this prescribed good works that they give to you of indulgence, things like fasting, praying, or doing a pilgrimage, or some of the ways in which you could remove this sin. The payment of keeping oneself out of purgatory, there was a, there's a, a new one that was being added, which was giving money to the church. The famous St. Peter Cathedral in Rome was partially funded by these indulgences of people paying money to the church so that they would not have to be sent to purgatory to have their final cleansing before they go to heaven. And near the end of the 15th century, a German friar by the name of John Tetzel was commissioned by the Pope to uh, travel throughout Germany selling indulgence on behalf of the church. So Tetzel declared as he would go from town to town that as the coins clinked in his money chest, the soul's were being released from indulgence to be into the presence of God. And so they would fly from purgatory to heaven. There was a second selling point, though, that was being told by Tetzel. You could not only pay for your sins you've already committed, but you could also pay for the sins of the future, your future transgressions. So it's like you can get a double payment, pay for the past and secure the future. And then they would come up with a price for you. In a, in a biography of, on Martin Luther, there's a story about Tetzel and these indulgence that I found interesting. The story is told that there was a certain Saxon nobleman who heard Tetzel's proclamation of indulgence as he's coming through town. And it made him quite angry because he did not believe this was true and it was uh, twisted and uh, preying upon people and their finances. 
So the man went to Tetzel and asked about purchasing an indulgence for sin that he intended to commit. Most assuredly, said Tetzel, I have received full powers from his holiness for that purpose. They negotiated a fair price for the crime. Uh, a fee of 30, 000, or a fee of 30 crowns was what it was agreed upon, and he paid and received his payment. And as Tetzel journeyed on his way out of town, this man with some of his friends were hiding in a nearby forest, and as Tetzel came by, they jumped him, gave him a light beating, and took all of his money. Of course, as the story goes, uh, they didn't try to disguise themselves because Tetzel filed a suit in the courts against this man. Well, at the trial, the man presented the letter of of explanation, and in so doing, he shows that Tetzel's signature, his personal signature, is on this letter absolving him of all wrongdoing. So when the Duke George, the judge before him, that was bringing this action, examined the document, he ordered the accused to be released because he had already paid for his crimes. It was not long after this, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door. If you don't know, this is what his biggest argument was, the church misusing its power and misusing its funds and preying on people. Thousands were held under the fear and torment of giving their money to the church in order to find peace and comfort. Indulgences became one of the most powerful manipulative systems or ploys of the Roman Catholic Church to this day. From a false teaching of purgatory, it led them to another false teaching, which is indulgence. So assurance was no longer given to the believer by faith alone in the work of Christ, the blood of Christ covering all of their sins, but could only be achieved by the level of money one could give. So the more wealthy you were, the less suffering you would have in purgatory. Now, on a much different scale, this type of teaching is popping up in modern Christian culture today. The Roman Catholic Church was placing the guilt of sin back on the believer is what they were doing. What Christ paid for was taking off of the cross and really put back on the sinner and said, there is still much more for you to do in order for you to be acceptable in the eyes of God. Those who should uh, should live their lives in the freedom of Christ by faith are now being put back under bondage and said, there's penalty for your sins. Humanity has used guilt and fear as a controlling mechanism since the beginning of time. This is not just uh, the fault of one particular religious system like Roman Catholicism. We can see it in the way in which our own culture, and even in our own Christian culture, advertises to itself. You can't be whole, or you, or truly you, truly you, in quotes, unless you have this product, or use our service, or go and give to our foundation. Truth that is being twisted today is not very different than that times of a past in history. It's just amplified by the availability of personal news stations, which is also known as social media. Everyone can report what they think is true now right from their phone and tell the world how they should think and live. And if they don't, shame 
on them. So if you don't agree, they you will be shamed, scolded, and made sure that you feel like a horrible person. We have turned, really, um, I wouldn't say we have turned into, we're just, we're just uh, witnessing and seeing it at a higher level than normal, a shaming culture. God's name is being used, unfortunately, to create this new kind of standard for Christians that cannot be found in the inspired book of the Bible. What we are seeing today, as I have mentioned before, it is not new to the Christian community. The struggles that we have, the sin that's in our culture, this is not the first time we've ever had to deal with murder of children and sexual deviancy and race. This has been around even from the moment that we're going to learn today in Colossians. Well, thankfully, we have the Bible to bring us clarity when we face these types of circumstances. So as we look at Colossians 2, just so you understand why Paul wrote this letter, and it'll help uh, as we read chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to help expose heretical teaching that was being uh, being disguised as Christian doctrine within the church at Colossae. The teaching was not opposing Christ, They weren't directly attacking Christ, but clearly placing him on the sidelines, removing him from the focal point of the church. Where, yes, Jesus' death and resurrection can save you, but there's still more you must do if you're going to be an acceptable Christian. So let me read to you, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. This is what Paul begins to say of this church in context of how they should deal with it. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in him, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have here the intentions of what is to follow in his letter. The full assurance of the believer is what Paul is going to press in on his letter. This is what he is going to put back into their hands and making sure that they keep Christ and the treasure of Christ as their motivation, not fear and not guilt and not the opinions of the teachers of those who are infiltrating the church. He continues, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So how did they receive Christ? Well, it's by faith through the teaching and preaching of the word. Paul says this in Galatians. So it's hearing of God's word that brings faith. So we gain forgiveness and righteousness by faith in Christ, not by any other measure or actions. So if you if you started with Christ by faith, then it is that same way in which you continue, not by any other standard or work. So this is why he says, see to it that no one takes you captive in verse 8. 
See to it that no one takes you captive. Uh, The Greek dictionary describes this as being uh, to carry off as a prey, to make a victim or a fraud. So he's saying, don't allow someone to victimize you, to pounce on you, to steal your assurance and joy. How could this be possible? How would this happen? Continue reading. By philosophy, an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it was being reported to Paul that believers were being victimized by false teachers, causing them to lose their focus off of Christ and even in wavering of their assurance. So how does Paul battle this? I'm going to read this next section. It is long, but it is glorious. Read how Paul battles against everything that could possibly come in and put the work of you, uh, the, the, the joy of your salvation back on your works. So this is how Paul deals with it. He says this, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you have received circumcision with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them under into open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or, and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus, to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sinuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from who? God. When it comes to our right standing before God, our adoption into His family, we are told that Christ is the one who paid for that as all that is required. The use of circumcision, what He's using is this illustration that Jesus' death on the cross come and Cut away all of that which is clinging us to death. And that as we died with Christ, we were raised to new life with a new name, a new status. And that status is adopted for all of eternity. And he says, if you believe this to be true, which is how he starts his letter, I am so thankful you believe this, even though you've been distracted from it. I praise God you believe this. Now let's clarify. As we look at this section of Scripture, I want to break it down just a little bit more and how Paul has has it here. And he really points us to three foundations 
that we are to rest upon and be aware of so that we aren't shaken, that we aren't tossed about, as Ephesians says, by every wind of doctrine that can come in and easily sway us, and we lose our assurance, we lose our hope. So here's the first one. We can and should have full assurance of our right standing before God. This is uh, Colossians 2.2. 2. He says that our hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to each to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God, of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul says that we as a congregant, remember, he's not writing this to an individual. He's writing this to this church. So we as a church would be bonded together through the love of Christ, our love for each other, and in doing so, what we are receiving is the full riches of assurance. Paul is not calling these dear, wearied, uh, feeling the shame because they aren't living up Christians he is, he, who, are, who are worried about their assurance. He comes in and says, you can have full assurance and the riches of this assurance And he never points to them. Did you see this in the text? He never points to them or their actions. Who did he point to? The sovereign God and the Savior of Jesus Christ and his actions on our behalf. So we can and should have full assurance. And the moment that someone steps in and wants you to question your assurance based upon anything that you do or don't do, or you say or don't say, or what you claim or don't claim, or what you tweet or don't tweet, Paul says, don't let them victimize you because they are going against the truth of the gospel. The human heart has this natural desire to self-justify itself. We want to look to our own efforts as proof that we can find goodness within us. This is why often news stations are so popular. We love to see the stupidity of other people. It makes us feel smart. How dumb are they? And this is why news is popular. We also feel very justified when we see the sins of others around us. And so we quickly jump on there to what we do. What's called is that we, uh, we, we project our righteousness for everyone. I boldly stand against this. And if you don't stand against it, you are not as a good person as I am. We love to self-justify ourselves. If Christ is the standard and God requires holiness, that's the news you should be watching and your mouth shall be shut out of shame to ever compare yourself to Christ, let alone compare yourself to your neighbor. It's ridiculous. At our church, we use this phrase often because it's true. Everyone is in equal need of grace. Therefore, no one should be judging each other, but pushing each other into Christ. Much of what's being pushed out there today is a self-righteousness that has no foundation in Christ. You were told you were a good or bad person based upon your association or vocal, vocalizing a, a particular opinion. If you find yourself trapped in here, you can and will begin to see how you are and your standing before Christ can call into question. Paul says again, and we remind you as we, before we go to the next point, he says, do not 
let them rob you of your assurance to eight. See to it that no one takes you captive. Here's the second thing Paul begins to point out for us. Number two, the only way we grow and find strength in the Christian life is keeping our focus on what? Here's the interesting thing. It's actually not keeping your focus on growing or keeping your focus on you or your requirements or your righteousness or your obedience. What does he tell us? Look at verse 18. He says the focus is on Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up with reason by uh, his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. He says all of these things are they're pushing you to. We're not even going to get to this morning. But later on, he starts talking about they even have an appearance of wisdom and spirituality. He says, but they're of no value when it comes to growth or fighting against the flesh. He says, and not holding Fast to the head, capitalized, because it's in reference to Christ, for whom the whole body, that means the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that comes from God. So the focus is not on you and your self-righteousness, what you stand for and don't stand for. The way in which that we live each step of our life is by holding on to the head or holding on to Christ, which leads us to the third piece, If our focus and attention is on Christ and our need for Him, naturally what this will produce in us is a love and peace for our neighbor and for those to whom we disagree with. I think that there's much in this culture and life that we can disagree with. There's a lot that's going on. And unfortunately, I'm seeing it done out of anger, out of self-righteousness. People are saying things without thinking first of how that could come across. And multiple times in scriptures from Christ and from the New Testament epistles, we are told that the response of the believer to other believers and to the world is to find ways that we can live peaceably and demonstrate love. So even in our disagreements with each other and our disagreements with the world, our goal and aim is not to prove them wrong and we're right which is a funny joke in our home. And now, unfortunately, my four-year-old says it all the time. It's not we're right, you're wrong, and we're going to make sure you know that. But it's that we're all wrong and we're all in need of Christ. And it's because of his grace and mercy, I can tell you this truth today. And I'm going to demonstrate the same grace and the same mercy to you this morning. There's a, I've mentioned this before. There's a lot of pressure on churches right now to get involved in all kinds of um, needed uh, philanthropies. There are needs within our own cities that are painful to see. And the argument has been, why is the church so silent? And why is the church not getting involved as loudly as it sh- as the culture thinks it should? Well, when Paul is writing this, Even when Paul writes to the church in Rome, which the church in Rome, if you know anything about it historically, was almost identical to what we're dealing with right now, almost on every level. And Paul points the believer to Christ as the focal point of the church, and then we administer Christ through loving each other, and then it comes through us out into the church. Now, don't get me wrong. We as humans, as image bearers of God, should suppress evil 
where we can. That is a good thing to love our neighbor in such a way that if we can free them from bondage and we can suppress sin, we do so. But if that becomes the mission of the church and the focus of the church, the question is, which one do we choose? And secondly, how do we know we chose the right one? And number three, have we lost the very mission that God actually instituted the church for? So my encouragement to all of us is if you're sitting here and you're feeling this weight of guilt as if you have done something wrong and now God is displeased with you, that you should be doing more in order to gain God's favor and blessing back in your life. And those guilts are not coming from Scripture. My dear friend, I'm going to stand with Paul and say, I'm not going to allow that to happen because I should and have full assurance that Christ is good with me based upon faith alone, not based upon what I do and don't do. And through the best of our knowledge as a church, we will advance and go forward in love administering grace as we have received grace. So as a church, this is why in all that we do and function, whether it's our men's and women's Bible studies, whether it's our home fellowship groups or Sunday morning services, if we lose our focus off of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and we aren't pressing farther into the gospel week after week, you will lose your hope. And you, by nature, we should learn this by now, Have you ever read the Bible? It's like thousands of stories over thousands of years, humans proving that they try and self-justify themselves. And then just look at your own life. If you remove yourself from under the shadow of the cross, the need of the cross, you will immediately begin to self-justify. And you will find your focus not on Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning is that if you are feeling weak and beat down, if you are feeling less than, if you're even questioning your assurance, I want to encourage you to look to Christ, to what he has done. By faith in Christ, you stand right before him and will stand right before him forever, no matter what happens from this day forward. And I know it sounds scandalous. How could that be? Because God chose it to be. This is why it says, in him through the power of God. So we celebrate this morning. And all of the confusion and all of that's going on, we can gain clarity in not our beginning. The gospel is not our beginning point, but the gospel is the point of the Christian life until he comes and brings us home and we live with Christ and him forever. And so as we prepare for the table, this is why we take the table every single week. We want to read God's word. We want to be confronted by the law of God. And then we confess our sins so we receive forgiveness. And then we hear the gospel preached from the word and we receive strength and our faith is encouraged. And then we go to the table and have it preached to us once again while we live the picture of feasting on Jesus. Because as we eat and drink food and we drink water to sustain our lives, Jesus uses that illustration that says, upon me, you sustain yourself until I return. And how is that done? Through the ordinary means of grace, which we are going to learn soon. But it's through the preaching. I'll get to your question in a minute there, buddy. It's through the preaching of the word. It's through the table. I'm glad he has questions. It's through the table. 
And it's through prayer, the corporate prayer together. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to encourage you and help you understand that the table is not by which we uh, gain salvation. We come to the table as children. We are carried to there by the love and grace of Jesus Christ through faith alone, and it is there we are sustained in our faith and salvation. But we do not gain our right standing by any action, including eating and drinking of anything. So if you are confused, if if you don't know for sure, you don't even really know the gospel, we would encourage you don't participate in this because we do not want you to be confused that this action somehow saves you. But if you are here today and you feel dirty and vile, that your week was not the week that you wanted, and that you don't feel that you should take up the table because you haven't done enough for God. Oh, you missed the point. You are weak and you are feeble and you are lacking faith because you need the table. You don't clean your life up so you can be saved. You can't clean yourself up. Therefore, you go and trust in the one who can and has saved you. So please do not think that you need to be at a certain level of spirituality before you take up this table. You feast on Christ, therefore he sustains and cleanses you this morning. Before I pray, what we're going to do is we're going to start in the front row and walk over here, and we will hand to you uh, two cups stacked together, one with bread and one with the juice. And then please feel free to go back to your seat. Once everyone has gone through, then we will take communion together. This is just a simple way to make sure that everything stays sanitized. Let me pray. Our Lord, in so much confusion, there's, there's so many noises, so many, so many distractions away from Christ. We're fear of, we're afraid of sickness. We're fear, afraid of death. We're afraid of losing our jobs. We're afraid of what's going on with our country. Nothing seems stable. There seems to be chaos and death all around us. And then we open the word of God. And we see a sure foundation that cannot be shaken because it's based upon your power. Lord, you did not promise to fix this world, but you promised to save us from this world and take us to a new home. And so, Lord, our hope is placed in your promises that you have never failed. And to sustain us in our faith, Lord, we look to the body and blood of Jesus Christ to come in and spiritually strengthen us this morning that we may continue to believe in what is outside of us, and that is our salvation in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.